generally starting with the heart of Midlothian. And as the great rumbling periods, as surely and steadily as a stagecoach, carry me back to Edinburgh, the most beautiful city in these islands, I feel an embarras de richesse. There is too much I want to read, too many memories I wish to experience. Every winter I read The Task by William Cooper, and twice or thrice those wonderful books in it where he describes a winter evening, a winter morning, and a winter walk at noon. The frost blades of North Buckinghamshire, the snowed-over woodlands, the dog that gambled in the snow, the bells and post-horns, the cups of tea, melted, dead, silenced, evaporated for nearly two hundred years, come to life again. And if the next morning is nippy and white with frost, then Cooper's magic power of description gives an eternal look to the cold and sparkling scene, so that even this duller landscape in which I live might be the gentle undulations round Cooper's Olney Bucks, or it might be something earlier still, a frost-bound Dutch landscape by Bruegel. Winter is the time for reading poetry, and often I discover for myself some minor English poet, a country parson who, on just such a night, must have sat in his study and blown sand off lines like this, written in ink made of oak gall. Soon as ever the loud hooting owl that loves the turbulent and frosty night perches aloft upon the rocking elm and halloos to the moon. And here they are, the lines, widely spaced upon the printed page, and hundreds more by the Reverend James Herdis, D.D., incumbent of Bishopstone, Sussex, printed a century and a half ago, some of the most perfect descriptions of an English winter that were ever written in English. And you and I are probably the only people in England who are reading Herdis. The smell of the old book is like a country church when you first open the door. The look of the pages is spacious like the age in which it was written, and the broad margins isolate the poetry, as Bishopstone must then have been isolated among windy miles of sheep-nibbled downs. There is no need only to escape into the civilised past, which is more easily done in winter than in any other time of the year. Even modern barbarism becomes almost human, especially in places which make their money out of summer visitors. When I receive my fee for describing to you these joys of winter, I shall indulge in the greatest winter joy I know. I shall take the train to the coast and spend a night by the sea. The train from London will be fairly empty. By the time evening has set in, there'll be hardly anyone in it at all, for the larger towns on the way to the sea will have taken off most of the passengers. What started as an express will have changed into a local train, stopping at oil-lit stations, while the gale whistles in the ventilators of empty carriages. Standing out white on a blue-glass ground will appear the names of wayside stations and, reflected in a puddle, the light of a farmer's car in the yard will sparkle beyond the platform fence. Then we will go on into the windy dark until at last there is a station slightly more important than those we have passed, lit with gas instead of oil, and that is mine. I shall hear the soft local accent, smell the salt in the wet and warmer air, and descry through the lines of rain that lace the taxi's windscreen bulks of houses that were full and formidable in summer, and now have not a light in any of their windows. From The Village Curate by James Herdis, read by Liz Farmer.
The piercing cold commands us shut the door and rouse the cheerful hearth, for at the heels of dark November comes with arrowy scourge the tyrannous December. Joyless now, the morning sun scarce seen, and clouded eve. No genial influence sheds noon, eclipsed. Sad scenes ensue. Brief days and blustering nights and snows, such as the winter-loving muse of Cooper paints well-pleased, and such as mine views not unsatisfied. For though without, bleak winds and pinching frosts, Within is joy and harmony and peace. Yon half a dozen shelves support vast weight, the curate's library. There marshals stand sages and heroes, modern and antique. He their commander, like the vanquished fiend outcast of heaven, oft through their armoured files darts an experienced eye and feels his heart distend with pride to be their only chief. Now, mark we, what the master most esteems, yon antiquated thing, whose shapeless bulk fills half his room, the name a harpsichord. That ample case that underneath the frame of harpsichords so smooth, in shape uncouth reposes, from the morning broom defends a vile base, else long ago destroyed by the rude blows of slattern Dorothy. For she, a subtle wit, can plainly see no worth in that whose worth is far removed beyond her sight and reach. So, critic-like, she sweeps away her cobweb with a frisk and crushes many a pearl. That smaller case a violin protects, still safe and sound, though tumbled oft upon the parlour floor with proud disdain and ruin musical. Six ashen chairs, a table and a grate, poker and tongs make up the vast account. Such is Alcanor's household, such his state, save what might yet be sung in higher strains of pan and kettle, barrel, broom and stool, the furniture of wash-house, kitchen vast, and cellar ill-bestowed. Imperial themes, and worthy mediation infinite. Save, too, the tedious inventory above, of bed and blanket, old bureau and chair. Besides what ornaments the skyey nest of high-aspiring Dorothy. A maid is she, that sleeps in the moon's neighbourhood, and often hears the golden shower descend upon the tiles above, nor dreads assault from maid-deceiving Jove. Too wise were he to seek Callisto under Dion's nose. Let the fair silver-shafted queen depart, and Jove may come to woo her in the dark. She too has beauty that demands a veil. Oh, hide her from him, or she wins him not. The Burning of the Leaves by Lawrence Binion, read by Sandra Douglas Weir. Now is the time for the burning of the leaves. They go to the fire. The nostril pricks with smoke wandering slowly into a seeping mist. Brittle and blotched, ragged and rotten sheaves, 
A flame seizes the smouldering ruin and bites on stubborn stalks that crackle as they resist. The last hollyhock's fallen tower is dust. All the spices of June are a bitter reek. All the extravagant riches spent and mean. All burns. The reddest rose is a ghost. Sparks whirl up to expire in the mist. The wild fingers of fire are making corruption clean. Now is the time for stripping the spirit bare. Time for the burning of days ended and done. Idle solace of things that have gone before. Rootless hope and fruitless desire are there. Let them go to the fire with never a look behind. The world that was ours as a world that is ours no more. They will come again, the leaf and the flower, to arise from squalor of rottenness into the old splendour, a magical sense to a wandering memory bring, the same glory to shine upon different eyes. Earth cares for her own ruins, naught for ours. Nothing is certain, only the certain spring. The Smell of Chrysanthemums by Elizabeth Jennings Read by Hazel Pardon The chestnut leaves are toasted. Conkers spill upon the pavements. Gold is vying with yellow, ochre, brown. There is a feeling of dyings and...